Welcome to the Fat Fuel Family Podcast, where every week, Danny and Mauda Vega discuss topics that help families live a healthy and active lifestyle with their little ones, including nutrition and training, peaceful parenting, education, and mindset. To stay up to date, make sure to hit subscribe on this podcast and check out the blog at www.fatfuel.family. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram at dannyvega.ms, at fatfueledmom, and at fatfueledkids, and fatfueledfamily on YouTube. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Fat Field Family Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Vega, and I'm joined by my lovely wife, Maura. How are you, my love? I'm doing good today. Yeah? You're fasting right now? I am. How's that going? It's actually going well. Yeah? Just I feel good lately with the fasting, yeah. Good, because so you with have it. an I'm issue I'm not the type that. of person. Well, anytime I plan something, like, I'm just such an intuitive person that, and I am also, I don't know if this is an introvert thing, but I have, like, the commitment thing. Like, if I can't get out of it in 15 minutes or less, like, I got, you know, it gives me <laughs> I, serious anxiety. So, like... Like, you know, let's do a whole 30. I'm like, oh, I'm already not into it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I could do a whole 30 if I don't know I'm doing a whole 30. But anyways, (laughs) I don't even know where I was going with this. Oh, the fasting. Yeah. You're you're very lean. You're a very lean woman. And so it's harder for someone like you to fast because you are literally... And I'm killing myself in the gym every day. So today was a cardio day. So that's why... I'm doing the fasting because on the days that I lift, I'm just ravenous sometimes. Not me. I had four sushi rolls. Good for you. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, before we introduce our awesome guests, and I haven't been this excited for a while. I don't know why. I just think she's amazing. She is. Well, obviously, for many reasons, I think she's amazing, but I'm just super excited. But real quick, um, I posted about this this morning, but I want everybody to hurry up. Run out and get your copy of Fat, a documentary by Vinny Tortorich. He yeah. knocked it out of the park. It and was we need one to support of those, it. We got to support it. Um, it's it's a large scale movie that can get a lot of traction and hopefully more media coverage. And it's very credible, very uh, good sources and a lot of good people involved. So um, I encourage you guys to just remember that you're not the only ones and a lot of people, including your family, friends, your your social sphere, uh, they don't know about this stuff. And, you know, they're probably not going to even it's probably going to even be hard for them to believe as they're watching it when they're seeing some of these things, because. But people love documentaries, so I feel like you're going to be better off maybe buying this for them than trying to convince them on your own. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. So that's all I wanted to get um, get out for you guys, a little uh, housekeeping stuff. But this week's guest is a board-certified OBGYN with a background in nutrition, exercise, and health science. She's also a current fellow in integrative medicine, which that's super exciting. She's a wife and a mom to three little girls, and she has a passion for low-carb nutrition and ketogenic therapy. As a former college athlete, she got away with poor nutrition most of her life until her first pregnancy when weight gain and fatigue became a constant battle. She had low thyroid function, hormonal imbalance, and pre-diabetes until she finally found a sustainable way to optimize her health. She's brilliant, she's passionate, (laughs) she's fit, and she's most definitely fabulous. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jamie Seaman. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Danny Amara. Thanks for having me. I love that intro. <laughs> Danny's always got the intros on point. <laughs> I love Seriously. I love to show our, our guests like, you know, how yeah, much we care much about we them can. and how how impressed we are by them. Like everybody who comes on here, we're just so excited to talk to them. And you it's it's extra special because we know you and we got to spend time with you at KetoCon. So no, it's our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, let's get right into it because we want to talk to you about a lot of stuff. Um, We always lead off with the question, what is the most critical problem you are currently trying to solve? I am going to change healthcare in our country. Um, We have a system that is built on sick care. It's not built on Mm -hmm. healthcare. We have a huge problem. And the way that I'm going to do this is I'm I'm stepping down off my pedestal. I'm taking off my white coat. Um, I'm admitting to my patients and to my clients and and to everybody that I'm just as human as my patients are, and the the human body mm-hmm. has humbled me in my own health. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to be my own expert before I can be the expert for everyone else. And I just want to be an example for for other medical providers and, and for my patients, uh, what nutrition and exercise and health really looks like. Because until we get back down to patient accountability and, and provider accountability, um, you know, I, 
you got to walk the walk and talk the talk. And I, I'm just going to try to show, show people how it's done. I'm just one person. But if I can start this movement, um, I really, truly believe that we can get America and really the world back to actually focusing on healthcare, actually focusing on on things that doctors should, should be spending their time on. It, it shouldn't be yeah. on chronic diseases. It just shouldn't be. Well, I, love I, that. I would love, I think what would be super helpful to you, because I, I know that there are, you know, obviously we can think of a few off the top of our head, but I, I, I feel like something that you can think about um, as you, you start on this mission is is to find a way to connect with other like-minded people, because I'm sure all of you, there's not that many, you know, there's not that many doctors who are, you know, thinking this way. And I'm sure a lot of you feel isolated. So it would be nice to see any ways that you guys can create new associations, or maybe there's some that I don't even know about, but anything that can connect you guys so that so you feel like you're on a united front and you're not just isolated, because I can only imagine how it feels to, to, to go away from the standard of care. It must be, you know, pretty scary, right? I mean, depending on the state you live in, depending on, you know, anything that you say can be used against you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's kind of a scary time because you want to practice evidence-based medicine and, you know, some of the evidence, I don't know, is it all trustworthy anymore? It's it's a scary it's a scary time. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um Oh, so it's my turn. Sorry. I'm looking at Mara like it's your turn. No, it's my turn. All right. So the the first thing I want to ask is, you know, for you to talk about a little bit your your first pregnancy, your decline in health, and and how you stumbled across the ketogenic and the carnivore diet. Yeah, so I went to college. I played college softball. I was a nutrition major, um, but I'll be the first to admit I got away with a lot of really poor nutrition habits because I was an athlete and I was working out and I was working out really hard in the gym and. After I graduated college, I went to medical school. And so now here I am with these bad eating habits and I'm sitting in a library or in a classroom or a coffee shop for multiple hours per day, you know, studying. And um, I was still working out. So, you know, I, I wasn't obese. I mean, I, I was, you know, maintaining my weight pretty well. But then in my third year of medical school, my husband and I decided to start a family and we got pregnant with our first daughter. And I went to my 28-week OB visit, and I took this glucola test, which is a screen for <laughs> diabetes and pregnancy, and I failed it. And, you know, for anyone that knows me, I'm super competitive. So just to, like, have somebody be like, you failed the test <laughs> was kind of a slap in the face. But um, I have diabetes in my family. Um, so, you know, I wasn't surprised. And I was told um, when we tried to get pregnant, actually, that I that I had PCOS. I, you know, had some very irregular cycles wow. and some trouble getting pregnant. I had to use metformin and almost had to use Clomid to get pregnant. But um, I, we did get pregnant on our own. And then I had the first baby and then I got diagnosed with hypothyroidism. Then I had the second baby and uh, failed my glucose testing again. That was my largest baby, almost nine pounds. And then I had my third baby and all my girls are 23 months apart. So I had three babies in like 60 months. And um, after my third child, I I went to my annual exam and I said, you know, I failed my glucose testing and my dad's a diabetic and, you know, maybe we should check some labs. And uh, we checked and my hemoglobin A1C was, I was pre-diabetic. Wow. And so, you know, here I am and, and and there's more to the story during my third pregnancy. I had a, a very tragic event happen in my life. I lost one of my best friends in her pregnancy. We were due around the same time. And, oh my God. Um, wow. you know, you go through something like that in your life and, and uh, it, it changes your perspective. You know? And I'm sitting there thinking, this can't be my life. You know, I'm tired of hypothyroidism. I have prediabetes. And then I have a medical degree and a nutrition degree, you guys. Like, <laughs> yeah, wake yeah. up. Like, wake up. Who are you? So my husband and I just kind of had a, a come to Jesus talk with each other. And we said, you know, we, we, we got to get our health in order. So we tried a few different diets. We tried Whole30 and Paleo. And we finally landed on the ketogenic diet. And we have never looked back. First of all, we feel amazing. You know, I lost, I reversed my prediabetes. My hemoglobin A1C is great. You know, I lost 27 pounds. I, you know, all those things are great. But we really gained 
so much more in, in just life in general, just the ability, like our brains work better, our energy's better, our relationship is better with each other. Um, you know, it's, it's just changed so much more than, than just our health. And we were ketogenic for about two years or so. And I started seeing people going carnivore and I'll admit, (laughs) I thought it was like, I was like, what are these people doing? Like, there's no way you can just exist on meat. (laughs) But I've always kind of said, you know, I'm always about experimenting and trying new things. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to try it. So last November, 2018, we were like, we're going carnivore for 30 days. We're going to try this. And so we did, and we did feel better. It was kind of like a whole new level of, of ketogenic yeah. living. Yes. And, and I yeah. think for most people, the reason it works so well is I call it like keto for dummies because you don't get lured away by like all these treats with almond flour and erythritol. Yeah. And, and, um, and so it was just like a really strict form of, of keto. And we, gosh, we felt so good. And, you know, pretty much since then, we've been predominantly carnivore and I'm not afraid of plants. You know, I don't, my, my gut's pretty good. And, you know, I'm not afraid to have a salad here or there. Most, mostly for me, it's psychological. I just want a different texture. Um, and I've, you know, tried some carb cycling and some targeted carbs. And I'm always about being your own expert because keto doesn't look the same for everybody. We all come from different genetics and different DNA and, and what it looks like for you and for me and for someone else's could be different. And so I'm uh, just trying new things all the time. And we're predominantly carnivore and we feel really good this way. And our health is in a really good place. And we're... This this is how we're gonna live forever. We've <laughs> we've yeah, yeah. same here. I know. Taking the vote. I don't yeah. see anything else that that that. There's nothing that I can think of that's gonna just pop up out of nowhere and surprise me. Like there's no other yeah. there's no other food group that I'm missing. There's yeah. yeah. Like we're like okay, this is it. I mean, if there's a way to feel better, we'll we'll open our minds for that. But I I just don't. Well, I'm sure we'll find out about it. Yeah, because we're so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> we'll definitely be the first rock. to know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We'll be on the cutting edge. Yep. Oh, I love that. All right. Well, I got to, uh, you mentioned that, you know, amazing glucose test <laughs> and I'm glad you did. Cause I actually had, it. Oh, this is actually our next question. So low carb women everywhere. Well, pregnant women are constantly rolling their eyes at the glucose tolerance test that they make you take when you're pregnant. We just saw, you know, Ken Berry's wife, Nisha, she posted how she wore her continuous glucose monitor and, that no, they still made her do the test. So I guess my question is like, can they, like, how does this work? Like, can they actually make you, is there some other way to, uh, you know, some other alternative for women who don't really want to drink brominated vegetable oil? I mean, what do you think about that? Cause I, I, I personally failed both my glucose tolerance tests, but I was paleo at the time. So I was like, of course I failed. I feel like I'm dying now. Thanks. I don't ever have that. But um, then I passed the three hour one, which was just as terrible to take. But yeah, I'm just curious as to how you work that out. Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So of course, you know, every doctor, medical provider, midwife is going to have you know, a, a, an office policy on glucose testing. And for some people, yeah. you know, it's, it's make or break. You got to take the test or, or you can't be, you know, my patient or whatever. But right. um, at the, at the end of the day, you know, when you're saying, okay, what, what is the ultimate goal here? And the ultimate goal is to really know what's happening with the patient's blood sugars. So, you know, I do offer right. alternative testing. You know, there are studies with a, with something called the jelly bean test, you know, if you don't want to drink the drink or whatever, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, if a patient doesn't want to do it, then, then I recommend glucose monitoring to get a glucometer and actually see what's happening with your blood sugars when you, when you eat the diet. And And so for low-carb women, um, I actually recommend getting a glucometer because you're actually more likely to fail the test um, because – you know, you're not, uh, you're not stressing your, your pancreas very often. And so you give somebody like that, a a glucose load. And I know, uh, I heard Ben Bickman on a podcast, talk about his wife might've been your podcast actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, He did talk about that. That was me. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, so for low carb women, I recommend actually getting a glucometer and, and testing and, um, you know, the, the very interesting thing I did a live the other night with, uh, with Dr. Barry, actually, we, we talked about this very thing. The, the interesting (laughs) thing is, Despite normal glucose, I think the real question is how much insulin is it taking your body to make your glucose normal? 
um, right. because right. it's it's actually the hyperinsulinemia that's causing a lot of the a lot of the devastation. You know, um, yes. we yeah. know that from there was a large trial called the Hapo trial, and it basically looked at women who had gestational diabetes and those that didn't, and it looked at what their glucose levels were during the pregnancy, and then it looked at outcomes: how big were their babies, what was the C peptide level in the baby's umbilical cord, how many of them went to the NICU, how many of them had a shoulder dystocia, all the bad things we worry about yeah. with gestational diabetics. And what we found is even people that passed the glucose test, as they got closer to one standard deviation away from, from a normal glucose level, they had, they had more insulin, they had larger babies, they had higher C-peptide levels in their babies. So we know that even people that pass the test, we see consequences of hyperinsulinemia in pregnancy. And wow. it not only increases the risk for, for complications of gestational diabetes and large babies and such, but there's actually studies dating back to the 1980s that it increases the risk of preeclampsia, which is, which is the other yeah. disease of pregnancy that, that we also are scared about as OBGYNs yeah. because, uh, you know, one of the most common reasons for a woman to have morbidity and mortality in her pregnancy is, is cardiovascular disease. And we know that people that have preeclampsia have higher rates of chronic hypertension and heart disease. So yeah. when we're really looking at, at these diseases in pregnancy, you know, we're really mostly worried about this hyperinsulinemia. And we know that the, the pancreas, even in a normal pregnancy, you know, secretes more insulin and it's part of normal pregnancy physiology. But you know, back to your original question is, is what should a low carb woman, you know, what should pregnancy care look like for somebody that's actually eating more of a traditional low carb ancestral diet? And we should be checking the blood sugar. So I, you know, I agree with Nisha. Continuous glucose monitoring is basically like the gold standard. So, um, you know, unless she's going to like go home and binge on some Oreos in her closet and not tell her midwife about it, you know, (laughs) I I, I don't, I don't see a problem with her continuous glucose meter, but you know, I'm not going to pass judgment on on other healthcare providers, but uh, that's my, that's my recommendation. And I do take care of a lot of low carb ketogenic women in my community because, um, you know, I'm, I have the most experience with it and, and, uh, people in my community, uh, come to me for advice. And, and, and that's my advice is to actually check your blood sugar and see what's going on. Love it. That's awesome. I, I wonder, um, you know, in the absence of like, uh, an insulin test, what would you, would you be asking them to do like baseline tests with like postprandial blood sugar to see like, cause that would give us probably a better picture than just a fasted number or something like that. Yeah. So when we test in pregnancy, we test fasting and we like that number to be less than 95. And then we test two hours postprandial and we want that number to be less than 120. So we do ask women to test at least four times per day, uh, one fasting level. And then, you know, of course, if they're eating three meals, two hours postprandial, three more times throughout the day. And, you know, we don't, um, we want them to eat their normal diet and test. And if the blood sugars are high, then we need to look at cutting carbohydrates. We don't need to look at adding medications and insulin so that they can eat that particular food. You know, the American College of OBGYNs have come out and said that insulin is first line therapy for hyperglycemia and pregnancy. And I just don't agree. I I just don't agree with it. I don't agree with it. Oh, that's terrible. Come on, ACOG. (laughs) Anyways. um, Well, I, I, you know, obviously I, you know that I was in women's health for 11 years and I started as a pharmaceutical rep. I sold birth control. I sold IUDs. And I, I just I'm curious because on one hand, we we can credit birth control with with some of these advances for women where they they were able to work more and, and you know, further their careers and things like that. And then on the other hand, you know, there's obviously the issues with you're talking about the estrogen. Luckily, the estrogen's super low now. So like all the VTE, DVT, ATE, all that stuff, it seems like is very low. But in general, um, taking hormones and, you know, IUDs, what I'm sure that you're you're still putting a lot of those in because people are asking for them. But how does how does counseling look um, with someone from your point of view uh, when you're talking to these patients? So you are 100 percent right, Danny. Contraception has a place in women's health. Um, certainly, the unintended pregnancy rate in America yes. um, is is really high, and so I 100 percent believe right? in. 
Yeah, yeah, 50%. And so I think that that contraception has its place, but we have to look at the implications of different forms of contraception in women's health. And when you talk about something like the birth control pill um, is when you're using synthetic hormones like ethanol estradiol and then some form of a progestin, the digestive tract was never designed to have hormones put down it. And so it has consequences. Um, You're certainly right. It can increase clotting factors as the liver is trying to almost essentially detoxify the estrogen from the body. And it also depletes the body of key nutrients like B vitamins, zinc, selenium, and magnesium. And it can be the reason why women just don't feel that great taking birth control pills. I know you've never taken them, Danny, but um, they, <laughs> you, you don't feel that great. I mean, they're a great no, form of birth control if you use them, but they make you feel kind of gross. And um, I am a medical advisor for a company called Even Health that um, is making a new product called The Other Pill, which is a supplement to be taken with your birth control because I do believe that contraception has a place for women that choose that form, but we, we, we need to be supporting, um, their physiology when they do something like that. Um, when you talk about other forms of birth control, the patch and the vaginal ring, so NuvaRing and OrthoEvra basically work the same way, but they're transdermal dosing. So we do get to avoid the use of the liver a little bit. Um, when you bring up the IUD, there's two IUDs, um, out there. There's one that contains progesterone, um, levonorgestrel, and then there's a copper IUD called called Paragard. And we do get to avoid the use of estrogen by using the um, IUDs, but levonorgestrel is, is a somewhat what I call androgenic progestin, meaning it, it can come with side effects, you know, like hair growth and acne and, and uh, weight gain. The copper IUD, so it secretes copper ions that are cytotoxic to sperm, copper can, can compete for zinc in the body. So I think a woman's physiology has has certain needs when she's using contraception. Um, now, ideally, you could avoid use of, of all these and use something like natural family planning, where you are measuring your basal body temperature and tracking your cycles and either avoiding intercourse or using backup methods like condoms during your fertile period. But that requires um, a lot of a woman to really, you know, track that and be in tune with her body. And maybe she doesn't want to avoid, you know, sexual activity during that part of her cycle when her testosterone is actually the highest. So, um, you know, yeah, that's frustrating. It's, it's, yeah, it's every it's every woman's choice, but because we have um, the daisy and we get red, those yeah. are all red days for us. Those are like the days she yeah, feels the sucks. best. Yeah. And those are the right. days that, yeah, you actually, of course, it makes more sense, obviously. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a bummer. Your body wants you to get pregnant. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's every patient's choice, what they want to use, but with the, with the fertility tracking methods, the unfortunate part is you need a very regular cycle. And so for somebody that has menstrual irregularity or somebody with PCOS, who's anovulatory, what will happen is she will go on the ketogenic diet because I recommend it. And then she'll have a surprise pregnancy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's, I've seen it happen a lot. And so we, you know, we need to be talking to these people. If they're not ready for a pregnancy, we need to be thinking about, you know, alternative methods and, and how we can best support her health if she chooses, you know, another form of contraception. That's so interesting. And yeah, you're totally right. The reason that I'm, I chose to do the daisy was because I do have a really regular cycle. Like, on Very like regular. always it's always been so regular so i knew that i would be able to you know i know when ovulation is coming and all of that but um but yeah it's like the, the uh, i wanted to mention something like have you I, I feel like i've experienced this and i you know just word of mouth from friends but i kind of joke around that the way that most birth control works is by kind of killing your sex drive to be honest so i kind of like I felt like that on the pill and I, I kind of felt like that on the marina too. So yeah, have you heard any, marina. like, have you had any other, I don't know, um, patients like saying this as well? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. So the, the way that the pill works is by shutting down the HPA axis. So how we actually ovulate is our pituitary gland talks to our ovary and tells it to release an egg and the birth control pill shuts down that communication. So it's like shutting down the whole cycle. But what it also does is it increases yeah. things like sex hormone binding globulin and that binds up your free testosterone. And, and that's, you know, part of a woman's libido. And we, I mean, across the board, I see a reduction in libido in almost all women taking the birth control pill. Uh, we see it to a lesser yeah. degree with the IUD, but we, we do see it. I mean, it's not the primary mechanism of action, but certainly it's a, 
it's a contributing factor to uh, sexual dysfunction in women. Interesting, interesting. All right. Well, I want to um, talk a little bit about different stages of life as well. So we know you have a full obstetrics and gynecology practice. So you're seeing women at all stages in life. Can you shed some light on what the main issues you're seeing in women right now and how you approach treatment for these issues? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, women's life cycle, essentially. So I see women all the way from young teenage girls who are just starting their menstrual cycle all the way up to women who are or postmenopausal. Um, when we see our young teenage patients, you know, a big problem we're seeing now is, is uh, early puberty. So, you know, a normal yeah. menstrual cycle really shouldn't happen until, you know, about age 12 or 13, but we're starting to see very early development in, in young girls um, due to well, really poor nutrition and and weight gain, and and then of course exposure to things like xenoestrogens in our environment, all the the plastics uh, in our environment, and endocrine disruptors. Um, so I see women, you know, at that age, and then of course, um, you know, we are seeing sexual activity starting younger in teenage patients. So certainly, contraception is something we have to address in in that population as well, and then. After women go through puberty, they enter their fertile years. And so I take care of lots of women in their 20s and 30s and their first pregnancy and beyond. And and problems we're seeing in this population is uh, we're definitely seeing a rise in infertility. It's becoming a, a much more common issue. I feel like uh, things like PCOS are, are, are much more prevalent than a lot of the data would suggest. Uh, and then, you know, postpartum care. I think uh, rates of, of postpartum depression are on the rise, just depression and anxiety in general. Yeah. Um, these are difficult years for a woman when, you're, when your children are very small and the, the pace that, you know, our, our yeah. lives demand of us as women. You know, more women are working outside the home and um, you have this, this small child that's very demanding. I always, I always tell women, you know, we paint this magical picture of pregnancy and postpartum for women in this country that it's like rainbows and unicorns. And, and yeah. it's not sometimes, you know, sometimes it depends how much support you really have from your, your friends and family. But for working women, it can be, it can be very difficult. And um, I always say like human babies are worthless. Like they can't do anything for themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, like the first four months are, are, are really difficult. I mean, they barely smile at you. So um, we need to support these women during, during these really difficult times. And then, then women transition into perimenopause and this happens in our forties. I call it like reverse puberty. And this is when the ovaries are starting to shut down function of, of hormones like estrogen and progesterone and, and testosterone as well to a degree in women. And, uh, and then eventually women will go through menopause. And that's when we start talking about, you know, things they can do to alleviate symptoms of menopause. And, uh, I do offer hormone replacement therapy in my clinic. So that's something we talk about during, during those decades of a woman's life. And, and then after age 65, women don't really need pap smears. And I usually don't see them after that age unless they, <laughs> you know, have um, issues with uh, infections or postmenopausal bleeding. So I don't see a lot of women, you know, after age 65, the, the bulk of my practice is, is uh, women less than age 65. But I hope that answered your question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was great. No, I, I, it's good for us to get a, a good idea of, of what you're seeing out there. Obviously, we've heard a lot about the, you know, the early, um, the early adolescence or what do you? Well, I, I hit puberty pretty early, actually. I yeah, don't know what that's all about. Like I was 10. Mm-hmm. But you've yeah. but so did, but so did my dominant. mom. And I, I don't know. Do you think that some of it, because I kind of find that the women of the family, like we kind of have the same, uh, when it comes to things like that, like my mom got her period early. She also she went through menopause early. Her whole, yeah. she hit menarche earlier and she hit menopause And she hit earlier. menopause early as well. Like she's only 54, 54, 54. She, she was just 49. Turned, she just turned 55 and she she's 49. I yeah, remember she was 49. 48 or 49, mm-hmm. yeah. a little bit younger than the average. Right. Yeah. I mean, I always say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I mean, um, genetics are certainly at play when we talk about age of menarche or menopause. The average age in the United States of menopause is, is between 51 and 52. Interesting. Interesting. So just a few so, years but, but certainly half the women will go through menopause before that and half after, you know, when you look at averages. So uh, it, it does look different for everybody based on your, your genetics. Yeah, we we know someone who I don't I, I have to find out, but someone we know that's 
quite a bit older than that. And the last time I checked, she was still having a cycle. Wow. So it's someone That's- someone that we all know. Someone that everyone in this conversation knows, but I won't bring it up. Anyway, <laughs> um, so one of the things that I've, I saw... I didn't want to. I didn't want to say who it was because I. But she's. She's like, how the heck are you still getting a cycle? And I'm like, I'm like, I was blown away by it. I got to find out if she's still doing it. Um, but I don't want to say who it is. I'll, I'll tell you off air. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that I saw. <laughs> yeah, she. She's. She. Hey, it's a. It's to me. I think it's kind of cool that she's still getting a cycle. I'm sure that's good for her. It. It. it it's so important for like you know, overall health. She to probably have, feels better, don't you of think? Of course. Her skin, her hair, everything, her it's probably why health. she looks so great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> estrogen. I mean it's <laughs> estrogen's the reason estrogen's the reason that women live longer than men. I mean it's very, you know, protective to our heart and our bone and our brain. So yeah, good for her. That's awesome. <laughs> Well, one of the things that I also um, have been seeing a little bit, you know, when before I left medical device sales, I would notice that a lot of women were were turning to their GYNs for primary care, and um, obviously, it's you're comfortable with your doctor, you you're going to see them every two three years, no matter what. So, um, I'm wondering if you've noticed this trend, and if so. Are, are you able to now, I know you're still doing your fellowship or, or, or you're about to finish that, but are you able to now have more conversations around nutrition and other cool things that, that you don't usually get to do as a, an OBGYN? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, OBGYNs do kind of get lumped into the umbrella of primary care providers, and we can certainly take care of other medical conditions Um there are some OBGYNs that choose not to do that and really practice more like a specialist. So some of my patients have other primary care physicians. And for some women, I'm the only doctor they see. And some of it depends on what kind of health conditions they might have. But for me personally, with my, with my background in nutrition and, and integrative medicine, I, I take a different approach probably than most of my you know peers and colleagues. My visits, my annual visits are heavily based in lifestyle, nutrition, exercise. Um, I always address those as the primary treatment modality for for a lot of signs and symptoms and complaints that patients might come in with, which I don't think is how most other doctors practice. So how my practice looks is is probably different than than most. But I think it's an amazing opportunity to influence the health of my patients because this isn't something we were taught in medical school. Um, I, you know, I, like I said, I come from a different background, but if I'm able to influence a woman's health prior to pregnancy and, and during her pregnancy, we have the ability to change health for generations to come. So I think it's, you know, as OBGYNs, because we provide so much primary care, I think we really need to start looking at this model of care for women. Um, because they may not be seeing other doctors. And this is, you know, our time to to intervene. Okay, so I want to talk about, um, so we often hear a lot about low carb and women's hormones. Um, personally, my cycle became very short over time after being on a ketogenic diet. So it went from like a normal 28, every 28 days to 24 Um the longer that I stayed keto. And then I've, I, I recently started adding a post ovulation carb up around day 19 and it does push my cycle back to 28 days. I'm not, I'm still not sure why this happens or if it's even necessary or bad to have a short cycle, but I'm just curious as to your insight on this topic. I know we're all so different, but is it bad to have a short, uh, a short cycle? I mean, what do you think about the carbs and the and the hormones. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thought. So most women, you know, on average in a perfect world have about a 28 day cycle, but it's normal to see women that may have a 25 day cycle or even women that have, you know, maybe up to a 32 or 34 day cycle. As long as it's coming at that same interval, um, there's, there's really no issue with it. Um, Women, depending on how much hormone they're making from their pituitary gland and from their ovary will determine, you know, when the follicle develops and when the egg gets released and, and, and then when the menstrual cycle will start. So it's not harmful to have a short cycle. Now I, my theory as to why that's happening is um, you're very fit. You're very lean. (laughs) We have, you know, similar body types. And 
I've tracked my own cycles. I've tracked the hormones. So you can actually track a woman. Um, you can do cycle tracking. So we actually look at the hormone levels on every single day of the cycle. And sometimes we can pick up on these nuances, you know, um, and, and changes is, is what I find is a lot of times the, the estrogen is actually, you know, quite low and that starts to shorten the cycle. And I've seen this really amongst women in the carnivore, you know, community as well. Um, yeah. I think that the macronutrient ratios when, when a woman, especially, you know, goes carnivore, that's very fit and that's working out in the gym is that they tend to overconsume protein and, and sacrifice a little bit of fat and our hormones are made from fat and cholesterol. And I think sometimes in the body, we, we start seeing the estrogen drop. And what I've noticed is if we back off the protein just a little bit and increase the fat just a little bit, um, a lot of times we can get the estrogen to come back up. And clearly you still have a, you know, a regular cycle, which is good. But I, I have seen women in the carnivore community who have, who have lost their cycle uh, due to this exact thing. Right. And so sometimes I, I do think it takes some dietary manipulation. Now with the with adding back the carbs, you know, during the luteal phase, uh, it's interesting. I, um, you know, is it, is it this short burst of insulin that's kind of helping, you know, push, push the progesterone levels? You know, I'm not sure. It's, uh, I think it's something that, you know, we can, we could, we could look at. Um, but I think if you have a regular cycle, uh, I think that is, I call it like the fifth vital sign in women. You should be menstruating. If you're not menstruating regularly, your body's telling you this is not a good time for a pregnancy, which means your health is not in, in a good place to, to reproduce. Right. And so I, I think it's like the fifth vital sign for women. If you're menstruating regularly, even if it's 25-day cycle, I don't really have an issue with it. Wow, that's so interesting. I think the whole thing behind the carbs, I, I mean, really, I this is, I got this from, you know, Allie Miller is the one that talks about this. And what is it that she says, Mimo? I remember it's like leptin. Oh, leptin It has depletion? something to do. Yeah. It has something to do with leptin or something. I think that's leptin. the reasoning behind it. Yeah. But, um, but that makes sense about the fat because I do sometimes prioritize protein a lot and I will find that my fat is too low sometimes and I don't like it. I'm just like at the end of the day, that's why I'm actually been, I've been tracking lately because that is my problem is that I don't need enough. I don't need enough. (laughs) What a problem. Right. Yeah. 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 It does suck though. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah. So the, I mean, the ketogenic diet is really good at suppressing ghrelin and uh, what Allie's talking about with leptin. I mean, yes, sometimes just doing a, some excess calories. So like almost like a calorie refeed or, you know, a carb refeed can sometimes kind of boost or trigger um, some balances between ghrelin and leptin. Yeah. I know exactly what she's talking about. Awesome. Awesome. Man, I had another question that I was, that it was, it had me thinking and it totally. Well, I'm thinking maybe I could, you know, try out, I'm just curious to see how it would work if it would work the same, but like a fat refeed. Well, Do you know what I mean? With leptin, the research that I've seen, like when it comes to like doing stuff with leptin, carbs seem to affect that more. Have you have you read anything on that? Like on you know lep- like resetting your leptin, um, or like when people are on prolonged diet, like prolonged dieting, um, doing calorie shifting for you know just to get your your leptin and ghrelin normals back to normal or le- leptin and ghrelin levels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so like what we see in the literature is that when somebody is, well, I mean, I'll call it, you know, dieting is that at about day 14, you know, we, is when we start to see this reduction in leptin reduction in, in T3. So I think, you know, just in general, a calorie refeed, I think is, is beneficial. Like every, at least every 14 days, you know, whether it's a carb refeed or a calorie refeed, I think um, it may accomplish the same goals. Yeah, I love, I mean, I do it with my clients for other reasons. I mean, every, a lot of the time I'll have them do uh, 11 days in a deficit and then three days at a, at a surplus. And so overall they're, they're going to be in a deficit, but those three days do wonders because of that 14 day thing, you know, like it's, it's, you know, three days right before the 14 day mark. Um, It's, it's amazing how quickly that can happen. Yeah. I mean, I think the body is really smart and it, what it will try to do is it will always try to, you know, conserve and, uh, you know, it's, it's goal is essentially for you to reproduce. So if it senses a stress, you know, if it senses a stress, it will, it will try to adapt around that. And so I think always kind of switching things up and, you know, I don't want to say try to fool the body, but, uh, cause it's smart, but 
<laughs> uh, yeah, no, I agree. I agree with what you're doing, Danny. I think it, uh, it works. Well, now that we've, we've talked a lot about these, you know, these healthcare topics that I, that I think are really important for people to know about, I, I wanted to take a minute to ask you about, you know, your life and, you know, your personal goals. What are your current personal goals and what would you like to accomplish in the next year? So for me, I, you know, I lost this weight and then I finally got back into the weight room about 16 months ago. So it was very interesting. I was uh, a two-time lifter of the year at Nebraska when I played college softball. And then when I left for medical school, I basically left the gym. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I finally got back into the, into the gym 16 months ago and started lifting again. And so now a lot of my, my, my physical goals are, are, you know, body composition and just seeing what my body can do. And, um, after having three babies, I never thought that I would ever, you know, be where I am now. So my husband and I are thinking about doing a, a bodybuilding competition next May so that's on our uh, on our horizon. Um, I'm I'm starting a podcast. So in my business world, I'm you know I'm starting a podcast. I'm working on a book. So I you know I really want to continue to kind of push the uh, push the agenda in my world as a as a physician and and um, really kind of you know what I like to think is a health influencer. You know for for yeah. women's health. Love it. So. Uh, that's what's going in my business and in my life. I have three daughters. They're four, six, and eight. So they keep us, you know, extremely busy. And we're so blessed. We have three healthy kids and we've been revamping. You'll be, you'll be happy to hear because uh, I know you guys talk so much about your kids and, and what they eat is we've really tried to revamp our kids diet that ha- started in uh, January. We're kind of making our kids more low carb. They're not carnivore, but gosh, it's funny how often now they ask for like a bowl of meat or a steak. <laughs> um, even in the face of being offered like a protein waffle, they're like, no, oh, yeah. a bowl of meat. That's fine, mom. Or like, oh, I'll take some steak with mushrooms. That's what I'd like. It's just mind blowing. Um, yes, I love so we're really happens. like, yeah, like we're totally revamping their diets too. And uh, we're just in this together as a family. That's awesome. How has that been? Like you guys, I know you guys were keto and like they're watching, you know, and that's what we try to tell people, like, just start with yourself, you know, model, model the behavior, talk about it, uh, you know, get them involved. But it's interesting. That's so true. Like Desmond does the same thing where he'll leave a waffle and eat his burgers. Um, but have you run into any, um, Sorry, we have, there's like a little bit of a delay, but I was just going to ask, like, you know, what are what are some of the any any battles or any any, I guess, like school lunches, like any, you know, tricks that you can offer? Yeah, yeah. So we haven't had like pushback from our families because both of our nice. families, like when we kind of adopted low carb, they kind of did, too. So like my husband's family, um, his mom's lost like a considerable amount of weight. She looks amazing. And, and, um, like I said, my dad's a diabetic. So my mom and dad, you know, kind of eat low carb. So we don't really get much like pressure from our families, but I think sometimes as parents, you kind of like project onto your kids, what you think they would like. And I was totally guilty of that. Like I was eating, you know, chicken and broccoli for dinner and then fixing my kids like mac and cheese and goldfish <laughs> and stuff like that. So, um, with our kids, we've really come at it from the perspective of this is what I like to eat. This is how it makes my body feel. Um, always just talking about like, what makes me feel optimal? What is nutritious? Like what fuels my body? Like not saying like you can have that and you can't have that. Right. I grew up, I grew up on hot lunches at school. And so my kids know if they want to take cold lunch to school, they have to pack it themselves. And it's super cool. Cause like I'll come out in the kitchen after the gym and my daughter's making her lunch and she's packing like turkey cubes and cheese and she's like cutting up some fruit and it's really cool to like watch her pack her own lunch and like the choices that she's making but sometimes they do eat at school and you know at the end of the day I'm like hey what did you have for lunch today and you know sometimes they have some carbs and that's fine I want to empower them to make the decisions for themselves and not tell them what to do I think that long term um, it's going to be a better approach for for their health long term so we've uh you know, definitely cleaned up like the snack bin at our house. And we always are just amazed every time we open our fridge. Now we're like, look how bare this looks in here. Yeah, <laughs> We just don't, we don't have all this like food waste, you know? 
It's so true. Oh my gosh, so we true. used to throw away so much produce. We used to throw away so much produce. Now when we buy it, when we do buy produce for the boys, it's because they they ask for it and they'll eat it within a, a day or two. Yeah, yeah. Well, they still right. get the fruit and stuff, but like, yeah, veg, like yeah. lettuce or something. That's like a rare thing that occurs here. Uh, but then like Desmond will ask me for it. And it's so funny. Like I totally forget vegetables even exist sometimes. Because um, even us, like if we're going to eat something that's not a, not a, not meat, it's usually like nut butter or yeah. a fruit or something, yep. you know, or like sweet potatoes. Yeah. I love that idea of having them pack their own lunch. So I'm going to try that out with Desmond. I think he'll actually love it and it's oh, going to yeah. help me out because I hate packing the lunches in the morning. I'm so rushed. So I might have him do it the night before. That's a good idea. Oh, that is smart. Yeah. yeah. And it is empowering for them. It's the same concept behind, you know, um, I think it was all those years ago, like seven, eight years ago when we first, when we were paleo and we read Eat Like a Dinosaur. Yeah. And it was this like kids book on, you know, how to eat paleo. And the biggest thing that we took away from it, we only had Desmond at the time and, and he was a baby. And like, so, but when he started to eat was this involving them in the process. And like, that's exactly what you're doing. You're involving them in the process. And now they're taking ownership. And I think it's just number one, they may not know it, but they deep down inside, they feel good about themselves for yeah. making their own lunch. They probably feel like they're more responsible. They're more grown up They're And then when they eat it, it's like they take pride in eating what they prepared for themselves or what they set apart for themselves. Yeah, 100 percent. I love that. And that's I'd love to see so many different families doing this. There was another question that that, that I had like 15 minutes ago, and I, I just remembered it. <laughs> And I, I had to ask you because one of the interesting things that I've um, come across, I was reading um, Dr. Kate Shanahan's book, Deep Nutrition. It's a really good book. And it's, you know, she's like Weston A. Price. She's, you know, very smart, traditional foods. And she was talking about um, how, you know, traditional knowledge was that, you know, whenever you lived, like whatever your village, you always had like women in the community who were the experts in childbearing and, you know, all of the health issues and, and all the things that, that are around childbearing. And um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was this whole thing where um, if the the pregnancies are too close to each other, it's it's so traumatic and it's so much of a of a job for the body to create another human that these micronutrient deficiencies and other mineral deficiencies all these other things they they can you know cause uh, you know epigenetic changes to the baby you know little little marks on their dna and and now we're seeing all types of um you know new birth defects and and d- things that we've just never seen before even even proportions are changing um and i know like ACOG, I think they say that you, I think it's like 18 months or less. If you, if you, if you, you need to wait at least 18 months, um, to, to have, you know, to, for your next pregnancy for health reasons. But, um, when you're talking to patients, how, how do they react when you're telling them these types of things? And, um, do, do you think they understand that like they, they could probably be changing the way their kids look even like by, you know, not waiting long enough? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's super interesting to think about when we talk about like epigenetic influence. Um, the, you're right. ACOG says, you know, some studies will say 12 months and some studies will say 18 months, but we know that short interval pregnancies increases the risk for small for gestational age babies, meaning the baby doesn't grow to its growth potential. Um, and I and I do think it's from nutrient depletions. I, I think the increase in birth defects and some of the complications that we see in pregnancy are likely more related to hyperinsulinemia oh, and yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. than, than anything. <laughs> I mean, um, even like yeah. when you look at studies on heart defects, like which is the most common congenital malformation that a baby could be born with, uh, hyperinsulinemia plays a huge role in that development of the kidneys, development of the lungs, um, for the ability to breathe after they're born. I, I don't think that the general population of women understands the influence that their dietary choices make in their baby's health. I really, I really believe that, that, w- that most women don't understand that connection. Most doctors don't understand that yeah, connection. That's yeah, that's the problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the doc- yeah. Yeah, that's why it's so important what you're doing because that's the thing. It's like the doctors are not telling them it's wrong, you know? They're just so, not, a, it's not on their radar. Yeah, it's not on their radar. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, we have so many other things to talk to them about, you know, <laughs> yeah. we're pressured. You we have, have to a, talk to them about, yeah. We have a short office visit, you know, a new OB exam and you have to offer them genetic testing and you have to offer them cystic fibrosis screening. And, you know, it's like, we just don't have enough time to, to talk about everything. And for most women, it's like, just take your prenatal and you'll be fine. Right. But wow. prenatals these days, I mean, they contain folic acid, they contain synthetic vitamins that are not bioavailable and if a woman doesn't have good nutrition, there's huge implications to the pregnancy. So, so what you're saying is that you should just suggest that everyone joins the raw liver gang, and like that should be like the pregnancy multivitamin. Like, here, have a have a liver pill. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, I mean, here's the thing with with prenatal Messing. nutrition is that we. We know there is a recommended intake of vit- certain vitamins and minerals to create a you know super optimal little human baby. And eating fifty to sixty percent carbohydrates, it is mathematically impossible to get the right amount of those nutrients yeah. and minerals if you're not eating an animal based diet. And so, yeah, I mean, people are like, "What should you eat?" I'm like, "Well, you should eat beef, eggs, liver, salmon roe." I mean. Most women are like, what? (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to wrap your mind around. And most of these women, unfortunately, you know, by the time they present for pregnancy, it's, it's difficult to change dietary habits like that. Yeah. Yep. I know. I think that part of your, your mission is going to be that, you know, like increasing that awareness of the, of your typical everyday mom who doesn't know anything you know, who doesn't really follow this stuff to to just make her aware of the idea that you have so much more power over your health than you thought. And it starts with what you eat. And if more people can just because I think even for me, like when I, you know, I, I, I love nutrition my whole life. And in grad school, I was I was I was reading books outside of my classes. You know, I was I was reading all these things that I loved it. And I still for some reason didn't make that connection until like the paleo days when we were really starting to see like, wow, this, this is what it means to like eat the way you're supposed to eat, like eat the way we used to eat and all that. Um, so hopefully, you know, this part of this whole mission of changing healthcare is, you know, getting women to realize, you know, the importance of nutrition and how that can not only affect their sexual health, their, you know, you know prenatal health and all those things that, Hopefully we can get there. That that would be amazing. Yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> but I, I had one more question because I, I, I heard about this recently and I was like, how the heck did I not hear this in like, you know, 10 years of, of being in women's health and, you know, every procedure that you could think of and all these other things and always having conversations around women's health with, with the doctors that I worked with. And um, someone recently told me this and I, I was like, I, I wanted to ask you if you've heard about this because... You know, we we hear that um, I guess thirty eight to forty or so is a woman's sexual peak, and you know this is when their you know they their their libido's the highest and all these things. And and I I had you know thought I knew everything there was to know because when I started in in women's health, it was it was doing menopause stuff. Like I was selling um, Vagifem, which I'm sure you know mm-hmm. for atrophic uh, what is it for atrophic vaginitis, right? And, right, and and so. Is it true that that there's that women um, a few years, let's say four to five years before uh, perimenopause and menopause, they experience a little bit of an andropause? Like I, I had heard about that with men, of course, but I hadn't heard about that with women. And which it, would explain the the, the, the loss libido. Of libido? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we do. So testosterone is secreted, you know, from the ovary. We see a small amount of testosterone in women, but. Um, we, because we do hormone replacement in our clinic, um, we do check a lot of androgen levels, uh, especially for this exact complaint. And it is not uncommon for me to see, you know, women in that age range with extremely low testosterones. Um, so, you know, I don't think we hear about it or, you know, a lot in the, in the literature, but we always more think about replacing estrogen in women, but I, I have seen it, um, right. And we, we typically use the word andropause when we talk about men, but uh, yes, part of perimenopausal transition is, is a reduction in androgens as well. So that, so would you, would you just be um, giving them just a, a mix of, of obviously very low amounts of, of testosterone with something else to get them to their prior levels, kind of like what men do with, with TRT? 
Right, exactly. So um, for me, I approach it from we need to maximize lifestyle interventions. So, you know, we look at their diet, we look at stress reduction, because when you look at how hormones are made, right, the the precursor is cholesterol, and then that gets converted basically into progesterone, and then progesterone can get converted into the androgen. So for me, I test, I use like Dutch hormone urine testing, and we, we look at like what their DHEA is, and we look at what their testosterone is. It's not as easy as just saying, here, let's just do this testosterone cream, and it's going to fix everything. Um, testosterone replacement is not FDA approved in women, so you can use it off-label, and I do use it in women. Um, but yeah, same thing, you know, as all these TRT clinics for men, um, it, it can be a problem in women too. That's, wow. and that's good to know, you know, because I, 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 one of the other things that we were, I was talking with a friend of mine, we were talking about sexual dysfunction and she was talking about this, um, uh, I forget the, the name of the, maybe if I tell you what it is, it's basically like this, um, lack of, of of desire to have sex, but it's, it's to a point where it's clinically significant. And it's, it's, it's like a, a, it has a name. Yeah. It has an acronym. Hypoactive uh, sexual DD desire or, disorder. Yep. HSDD. Yeah. HDD. There yeah, you go. Yeah, 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 HSDD. That one, that one, there you one. go. That's the one. HSDD. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. what are the, what are the ways that I'm, I'm going to assume again, and guys, if you haven't noticed, there's a trend here. <laughs> Danny's obsessed with this topic, obviously. <laughs> I, I just been, well, just no, no, no. You know why? Because it started with the Gaines wave stuff. Like I, I, I was approached by Gaines wave and I've been getting the Gaines wave. I just got my last treatment. It's unbelievable. Um, and so I was like, holy crap, I haven't heard I, I haven't looked into this stuff at all. Like, so now I've been really into sexual health. I've been into like for men's and women's sexual health. So um, I'm, I'm going to ask you, I kind of think I know where you're going to go, but just uh, for HSDD, I, what, what are the kind of the things that women should be um, doing to try to improve this? Obviously that working with the healthcare provider, if it's something that it's serious, but what are the main things that they can do to, to hopefully improve this? So hypoactive sexual desire disorder is basically something that causes distress for a woman. So you're exactly right. It's one thing to physically be able to, to, you know, achieve orgasm. And then the other aspect is for women, it's, it's multifactorial. So it's not just the physical ability, but it's, you know, emotionally, um, the desire to want to participate in sexual activity and to actually get pleasure out of it. So HSDD in women, I think, is actually much more common than what we think it is because as healthcare providers, we're not always screening for it. And I don't think women are as forthcoming um, that it's happening because we just think it's normal, right? Yeah men want more sex than women want. Right. And for men, it's like, I always say men are like a microwave and women are like a crock pot for men. (laughs) It's like they need a normal testosterone and the ability to get an erection and it will happen. Right. But for women, (laughs) they need, they need like, they need like normal androgen levels. They need no stress. They need the right amount of sleep. It's gotta be the right part of the cycle. They like, it's so much more complicated. So so we really, we need to acknowledge that women are like this complex biological creature. <laughs> um, so it's it's frustrating in women's health because the treatment options for hypoactive sexual desire disorder, testosterone's not FDA approved. We have we have one med that came out, Addy or Flabanserin, but it came out with a black box label that you're not supposed to drink when you take it because it oh, can cause goodness. hypotension. Oh. Um, and then just just a couple of, you know, a month or two ago, they came out with a new med that's an injection. So you want women to inject themselves into the thigh 30 minutes before they want to have intercourse and almost half the women will experience nausea. Well, that sounds really sexy. Wow. <laughs> That sounds amazing. Sounds like I'm, yeah, I'm in. Oh, gotta love pharma. I love it. Oh, goodness. It's just like, it's really frustrating because we don't have a lot of options to offer women. And so um, it's not, it's not straightforward. It's not easy. Um, It's a, it's a complex thing, but we, we need to start talking about it more because there are a lot of options for men for sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction. um, And women's health pales in comparison. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, that's, you know, even even though there are all these options for men, obviously, I would still like for there to be uh, more of an out there conversation. I understand that everyone's not the way I am. Like, I don't care about anything. I'll tell people, 
everything it's, about it's me as long as it respects my <laughs> wife. You know, I'm not going to be disrespectful to my wife, but, you know, I think, you know, a, a lot of the problems happen. How can we fix a problem if no one's reporting it? That's true. And it happens for men and for women. And so, like, that's why I'd like to have these conversations. And but I'm, it's just so funny because it's like there's all these options for men to have better sex, but then there's no <laughs> birth control option for them, only for us, which in turn kills the sex drive. So now we've got men increasing sex drive with women decreasing their sex drive. It's like a huge problem. But if you if you give me, the, me, the the whole thing with the men's the men's birth control is that they're all androgens. And so yeah, that's we true. have a I mean, imagine a bunch of people like, you know, just walking around with how easy people prescribe things and how oh, yeah. you never know like, you know, there'd be a, I don't know, for me, for me, the way things are going is pro- we're probably going to end up there because men are probably going to need testosterone um so we're probably going to be sterile one way or another soon yeah <laughs> so oh, this right. is great we can have a whole podcast on this one. Oh, totally yeah oh yeah i know well, well maybe we'll do a live on it soon yeah we should but yeah. um um before we let you go we want to just give you an opportunity to, to share where people can find you what you've got going on i want just tell us a little bit real quick about the book too like what what the book's going to be about yeah, so people can find me on Facebook or Instagram. Um, I'm known as Dr. Fit and Fabulous, and I've got a website, drfitandfabulous.com. And um, some exciting things we have. Yes, I'm working on this book. Um, and as of right now, it's going to be kind of like Fit and Fabulous Pregnancy, but I really want to cover like everything that women can do prior to pregnancy to optimize their health. Like, what does optimal you know, pregnancy care look like, and then, you know, address postpartum. Um, so it really will be geared for women. Um, we also have a keto summit happening right here in my own town in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, Danny and Mara are going to be coming to Omaha in January. Right. Danny, we're going to make you do snow angels. Yes. <laughs> we're Leave your I'm all over it. I love it. That's right. It's going to be snowy. We got to take the kids. We got to take the kids. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's going to be so, so keto awesome. Summit be Omaha. Fun. And if people want more information on that, ketosummitomaha.com is the website for that if they're interested in getting tickets. And uh, I'll be speaking there. We have a really amazing lineup of speakers coming in. Um, Dr. Baker, Dr. Nally, um, Dr. Ken Berry, some really awesome people. So that'll be happening January 10th and 11th here in Omaha. So, But people can uh, people can find me on social media. I'm super active on social media and um, I love hearing from followers. Well, thank you so much.
Oh, 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 oh,